It's Eddie. We have another great show for you today. We're talking to Sam Julian, and uh, we're discussing things like auth and uh, GraphQL. Um, it's going to be a really great episode, uh, so hope you enjoy it. Um, if you'd like to support the show, please visit us at techjunior.dev. You can um, sign up for our newsletter, uh, where, which goes out every week with the latest episode and some things you, we think you guys would like. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. It's uh, Tech Junior Podcast. Thanks a lot. And uh, let's get into it. Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Work Junior. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. And I have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie. I'm a front-end developer. I almost <laughs> messed up there. <laughs> I don't know how you can mess that up after saying it like 50 times now. But yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Today we got a special guest. we got Sam Julian. Sam, if you could introduce yourself. Hey, uh, yeah, it's uh, Sam Julian. I oh. work for Auth0. Yeah, no, it's fine. Everybody mispronounces it. So I always, <laughs> I always have to find the best way to mention my last name in a way that doesn't sound like I'm being a jerk about it. <laughs> but no, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a developer advocate engineer at Auth0. Cool. cool. So uh, I apologize for butchering your name. Oh, no uh, problem. I feel like I'm one-upping West Boss because they always tear up names, but we get to do it live on the show. So <laughs> <laughs> and like in front of the person. So um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. So uh, tell me what is Auth0 and uh, what it is that you do for them. Yeah. So Auth0 is basically identity as a service. So what does that mean? Like when you, let's say you're building an app and you want to have like a, a user system where people can log in and they have profiles and maybe they need to access a protected API of some kind. So you could either build this yourself or you could basically outsource it to a service like Auth0 where instead of you being responsible for handling the security of your login system and creating your own tokens and things like that, you outsource that to another service. Cool. cool. <clears throat> and so um, what is it that you do for Auth0 like in, in plain terms? Yeah, in in plain terms, I I do a combination of education where I go speak at different events about usually about auth related stuff, not not always. Um, I and these days doing a lot of online stuff, of course. And then the second part of my job is what's called developer advocacy, which basically means talking to people who use Auth0 or similar products or services and bringing that feedback back to the different teams around the company that can use it. So like the SDK team and the different product teams and the documentation teams, anytime people are having trouble with something uh, or, or they really like something or whatever, I take that feedback back so that we can continuously improve and make, make people's experiences better with the service. How are you getting that feedback? Are you, is it like through chat rooms or conferences or? It's sort of a doing? lot of different things. Um, 
so a lot of it is at conferences, you know, like after okay. I give a talk, people will come up to me and ask me questions about things. And, um, some of it isn't necessarily direct feedback. It's just like, what kinds of questions are people asking? What are, cause you can start to notice trends in the, in what people are, you know, like if I'm getting a lot of questions about a certain area, it's like, Hmm, maybe this is an area where our docs are kind of confusing or we need to write a blog article about it or, do a stream on it or something like that. So it could either be conferences. These days I'm getting a lot on Twitter, like people just DMing me questions about stuff um, or uh, on Twitch or wherever else. Uh, we also have a really active community forum at Auth0. Um, uh, it's a, what is that called? Discourse? I always get Discord and Discourse confused, but it's the, <laughs> the one that's a forum. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have a really active forum, and so I'm kind of always on there, uh, watching for what kind of people, what kind of questions people are asking, what what problems they're having, things like that. Cool, awesome. So um, I've it, only had like a little bit of experience with Auth0. Uh, as, as I was coming out of the coding bootcamp, uh, Eddie and I went to a code bootcamp, and uh, the final project, you know. If you're making a full stack app, authentication is a, a problem that you tend to come across because you've got users and to differentiate one user from another, you're going to have to have some kind of login system. And so, you know, I, I ran across that problem and ended up working in Node and coming across Auth0. And using it, um, I was able to get something going with React and, and Node, but uh, doing a full stack app with Node and working with like Passport and stuff, Auth0 kind of like you, you have to go through this whole boilerplate and song and dance with like Node and Passport anyway. And then Auth0 is like just another tiny layer on top of that. And then you have to like click through some annoying like free Auth0 screens and stuff. So I ended up not using it. Mm. But um, I can definitely like after digging into that, understand the need for something like Auth0 because authentication is like a nightmare. Uh, I mean, Eddie, yeah, do you have any experience really with that? <laughs> Not a ton. Um, I've done a, a little bit with uh, JWT tokens or JOT. Or yeah. Like, so uh, I did, there was a, a talk by someone at Auth0 at like Code Camp last year that I went to and that's kind of like uh, how I'm a little bit familiar with that. Um, but yeah, I, I did it. I was able to do it on the back end. I had some trouble with React and doing it on the front end. And then I just like, like um, I'm just going to fake the, the auth part of my <laughs> project and <laughs> <then> <laughs> just like get to the good parts. <laughs> like, I don't need to do this right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'd say both of your experiences are super common. I mean, I, I think one thing that's that people run into is like if they're just creating a like a, a small like sample application or something and they they'll run into uh like like what you ran into lee of of uh but this is annoying to like set up this extra layer but then if you start digging a little bit deeper and you realize like oh if i don't use something like got zero i've got to create the tokens myself and i've got to verify them and i've got to make sure and like then it's like oh wait what about like making sure passwords are secure and like, what about multi-factor authentication? What about, and so like the deeper you go with it, especially if you're doing something beyond just like a kind of sample project or whatever, where you have to, you know, deploy to production and go to the real world, you quickly get overwhelmed and, uh, it becomes more and more complex. So services like Auth0 are, are meant to like alleviate a lot of that burden. It's still not 
a perfect system, but it's uh, at least uh, at least you don't have to worry about a, a chunk of it, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting problem. Like my use case, I was wanting to do like an OAuth, not to be confused with Auth zero, mm -hmm. uh, OAuth handshake uh, with Google because I wanted my users to log in with Google. I was like, oh, let's see if Auth zero can help with this, and it was basically like yet another layer to insert between like my app and Google. So it was like click through, go to Auth zero, click from Auth zero, go to Google. Google comes back to my app, you know, and mm -hmm. so like I don't really think I was the the primary use case or like the primary problem that Auth0 is out there to solve. Uh, it's, it's more, in, as I understand it, in the direction of what you're talking about where you have like users and a database and you're storing like hash passwords and stuff. And instead of writing all that stuff and basically solving that problem all over again that's been solved many, many, many times by other developers, uh, Auth0 kind of will take that from you and, and just kind of give you a like an API or an interface to, to work with, right? Right. Yeah. So like in the situation you're talking about, like what you might run into is you want people to log in with Google, but you also want to add other things to their user profile, like preferences or roles or things like that. And so if you're purely passing through the auth to Google and coming back, you don't actually all you're all you're doing there is like getting a, a token from Google, but you're not actually persisting any sort of user profile or anything. So with something like Auth0, you'd use Google to to authenticate like that, but then it would become part of a of a bigger profile that then you could enrich and add things to and pull that in as part of when they log in. There's sort of a a combination with with a different user store. Right, right. Okay. So um what we've been kind of talking about is uh, kind of like OAuth, right? And as I understand it, um, OAuth was kind of made for not really um, authentication, but more authorization. Like, oh, I want to tap into some other Google service or something. So you go do this handshake with Google, they give you a token, and you, you use that to access like Google Calendar or Gmail or something like that. And it's right. the same thing with like Facebook or uh, GitHub would be a good example. Like, oh, I want to access this user's repositories or something. Um, it's meant for giving you some kind of token that you can access like other information. But it, it seems like by and large, most people are using it just to let you into an app and you don't really like use any of that extra information from any of those sources. Right. So. Yeah, OAuth is a protocol for authorization, which means, so we probably should define, like, authentication means are you who you say you are? Like, you know, whereas authorization means do you have permission to access this thing? So OAuth was designed to solve the problem of, let's say that you wanted your LinkedIn to be able to access your Google Calendar or whatever, instead of in in the past you would actually give linkedin your credentials and it would log in for you and this is of course like a terrible idea so oauth was designed to fix that basically um and then the the identity layer on top of oauth that people are familiar with without realizing it is called openid connect or oidc and so this is this is the like the the other side of it, um, the authentication side of it. 
Right. So uh, if you've ever clicked in you know, a web app or something and all of a sudden you're looking at like a Google screen or a Facebook screen, it's like, you know, Jiblo's web app wants you to grant access to email, calendar, you know, storage, whatever. And then you, you're, you have like a accept and cancel. That's an OAuth like handshake that you're in the middle of. And um, I, I saw a really good video on this. Uh, I think I don't, I don't want to bring up a competitor, but I think it was a guy from Okta at the time that, that did the video. Um, yeah, I've probably seen that video. Yeah, it's actually fantastic. It, the I think it's called <laughs> like OAuth and OIDC in plain English or yes. I'm sure I'm sure we can link to it. Yeah, I um, it greatly bums me out that that wasn't us that did that. <laughs> because, but it's like fantastic. It's a great I've I've watched it myself. I mean, it's it's got almost 500,000 views on YouTube and it it deserves wow. it. Um, but yeah, those, that's a, that's a great video to watch. Um, cause it's, it's hard to keep track of it. And it's honestly like our goal at Auth0, I mean, we want to educate people on the standards, but we really want people to not have to worry about the standards, you know, because that's a lot to keep track of. We, we really want to help developers like get their job done <laughs> and, um, Unfortunately, the way Auth works right now is funny. There was, I was just like in the middle of a conversation on Twitter over the last couple of days about this is like, even with services like Auth0 uh, and our many competitors, there's, you still have to have some like basic knowledge of this stuff that's very complicated, <laughs> you know, just knowing about like JSON web tokens and like Auth versus Auth and, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff is uh, it's a bummer. So it's sort of our job in DevRel to help help like be the auth Sherpa and like <laughs> walk people through these things in a way that they don't fall off the mountain, you know? Right, right. So since you kind of are like, you know, chest high in this like every day, what are some of the questions that you come across like over and over again? You're like, ah, if only more people knew, you, you know? I mean, really... I think, I think it's really some of the basic stuff, uh, like why you wouldn't just use a username and password or why multi-factor is important or um, what else? The difference between authorization and authentication. And I, I honestly don't, I don't blame anybody for not knowing this stuff. When I started at Auth0, all I knew, I wasn't hired because of my auth knowledge. I'll just say, like, <laughs> I, I I was a full stack engineer at a nonprofit, and uh, all I knew about these things was how our Angular app logged in to our C sharp API, and that's it. You know, and I didn't even fully understand that. So, okay. I kind of knew enough to get it done, and and that's about it. You know, <laughs> gotcha. So just to kind of retread on, on what you said, um, you said, don't just use a username and password. Do you mean like a plain text one or do you mean like not use username password at all and maybe do like OAuth instead or? Oh, I just, yeah, I'm, I mostly mean a plain text password. It really depends on your use case. Like, um, for example, if you're, if you're using a front end and a back end on the same server, then doing something like with cookies and a hashed password and everything is perfectly valid. I mean, it, it really depends on your use case, you know, like oh, one thing that 
is often a misconception. Like, so OAuth and OADC, we mentioned the we mentioned the problem of LinkedIn wanting access to your Google Calendar. This is what's called delegated access, and that's really what OAuth and OADC are about. Is like trying to prove credentials and prove permissions across different domains, like across different servers, across different um, like actual domains. And so if you're, if you're not in that situation, if you have like an express server that's serving up a, a static site or even not a static site, but it's all on the same domain, all on the same server, then something like OAuth and OIDC might be overkill for your use case. And you can just use like HTTP only cookies and, you know, try to make your passwords as secure as you can. Although that's a, a different rabbit hole, but that might be sufficient for your use case. Right, right. So, um, kind of covered a lot there, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We can, we can break it down. Yeah. So just, just in general, like when you said don't use a username and password, that's probably the first thing that uh, a junior engineer would think is like, oh, well, I'll just store their username and password. And, um, there's a lot of security problems with sending a plain text. So basically not encrypting it or not scrambling it or anything, just sending that information over the wire to an API even if it's um, your server that you're talking to and right. your server is hosting like the front end. So um, there's, you know, man in the middle attacks, there's uh, cross-site scripting, there, there's all kinds of problems that can happen uh, when you're working with that. And so the typical flow for that seems to be if you're going to go that route, you know, get your password to the, the server, but encrypt it once it's there right. and store it right. as a hashed uh, or scrambled uh, password and then keep that key to like unscramble it on the server. Like don't do any of that stuff on the front end because if you're doing anything like that on the front end, it's wide open to uh, basically everybody. So if you store right. some kind of encryption key, you're like, oh, I'm going to encrypt it and then send it. That's no good because somebody can grab that salt uh, off of their your front end application. Um, so and then the other like endless argument is the local host versus cookies or I'm sorry, local storage versus cookies uh, debate where people say like, oh, no, never use cookies, only use local storage. And then oh, never use local storage, only use cookies. So yeah. um, basically persisting that login session uh, becomes another can of worms that you're likely to spend weeks, you know, kind of researching. So it's true. Yeah. Uh, do, do you fall on one side or the other as far as local storage and cookies? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it is a whole, it's a whole nuanced conversation. Yeah. Uh, we typically avoid storing, uh, tokens in local storage, uh, but, but we're typically okay with the like, uh, HTTP only cookies. Uh, however, uh, there are some changes in browsers coming that are going to stop allowing third-party cookies, which is how a lot of providers keep sessions alive um, for tokens and stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, there's some other there's some other things. There's a lot of factors that go into this, but the biggest takeaway, I mean, the biggest takeaway is like what you said, like basically you can never trust the front end. <laughs> the, the browser <laughs> is not a very secure... Uh, 
place. <laughs> like it's it's you you should basically always assume that the browser is vulnerable. And so the best you can do is like try to look at your particular situation and what the most likely attack vectors are and then try to mitigate for those, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm already over this conversation. As soon as you, you start talking about <laughs> attack vectors, I'm like, this is beyond my pay grade. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm over it's it. A lot. That's why, I mean, honestly, like, if you, I don't think there's anything wrong with trusting the guidance for your particular situation. So if you're doing a single page application um, with React or something like that or Angular, then follow the best practice that uh, these the all of these different services do. I mean, there's there's only so much you can keep in your head and there are entire like organizations dedicated to this topic and you don't need to be the one who figures that out. You know, like all you can do is your best with the tools you have available to you. And so whether you're using Auth0 or somewhere else, uh they will be in implementing the best guidance that is available at the time. And I think that's the best that you can do. Yeah. So there's a, <laughs> there's, there's a couple of funny terms in like the security and, and authentication space. Uh, one that kind of comes to mind on the, the same, or maybe the opposite side of the table from like, just kind of do your best is uh, security through obscurity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which always makes me laugh, which is basically like uh, if it's not like easily discoverable, you know, then it's maybe more secure, <laughs> which is kind of crazy <laughs> whenever you say it out loud. But um, it's kind of like uh, maybe maybe to tie it all together, um, like WordPress. So there's a bajillion uh, WordPress sites out there. WordPress uh, has like a standard uh, toolbox that it gives you for creating an application and a backend and having a login system. And it comes with like a default configuration. And so because there's so many WordPress sites out there and they're all using basically the same technology stack and most of them are configured the same way, there's like some very common attacks that will come to, you know, or against a, a WordPress site. So if you're doing like your own, like handmade pre-baked, uh, security solution through node or something like you're maybe a little bit less susceptible to some of that stuff because it's just, you know, people can't open the, the web browser inspector and be like, Oh, this is a WordPress site. I know what 18 different hacks I'm going to try and run against it. <laughs> so, which, which kind of brings me to another point, which is, um, I know auth zero, you guys are big, like, uh, node JS fans, right? Well, we use it internally a lot. Yeah. I, I would cool. imagine it's like a big, chunk of your customer base too because node like doesn't have the solution already built out there there's no like laravel for node right uh well i mean laravel is just a like a like a server technology right for php correct so but so it comes node with has... oh, go ahead so laravel comes with like its own login system so if you're like make me a laravel app it comes with authentication um same thing with like wordpress um Django would be another one. Ruby on Rails, uh, all these things kind of you're like generate and it creates like a basic username password system. With Node, you have to do all that stuff from scratch. So, uh, at least in my head, I would imagine like Auth0 sees a lot of customers that are using Node. 
Uh, I mean, we do, yeah, but also um, this is a huge area for like enterprise development. So we have a, a lot of .NET and Java and um, C Sharp kind of stuff. I mean, so it's actually, I mean, the 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 types of things that are built into the server technologies are usually session based. They're usually like cookie based or something like that. They usually don't come with some sort of like OAuth implementation. Uh, that's why like in the .NET world, identity server, which is like, I guess, technically a competitor of ours, like that's, they're really big. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily more distribution to something like Node because it's a common problem across technologies, you know? Okay. So maybe do you think like you get a lot of enterprise clients because they just don't want to deal with it and they kind of have the pockets they can they can pay for a service like Auth0 and then it also maybe releases some liability from them as well? I think potentially, yeah. I, the, the, where things get really difficult is when you're trying to scale uh, your Auth like to lots and lots and lots of users distributed across the world. And so trying to keep that secure is really difficult. And it's like our entire job to keep the user store secure and everything and to implement best practices and all that good stuff. So, uh, you know, if you think about like a big insurance company or something like that, you know, they have to be compliant with a whole bunch of different stuff because of finance or same would be true of like healthcare, having to be like HIPAA compliant, all that stuff. So like, there are a bunch of security like and compliance standards that places have to be up to up to snuff with and like we have all of that stuff and so when you're dealing with like massive applications where you're with you know perhaps millions of users or something like that it really doesn't make sense to to do that um so yeah i think that's a big part of it i did want to go back to one thing you said you you said the thing about node uh like rolling it rolling it yourself because then maybe it wouldn't be uh as like or maybe it'd be less vulnerable because it was like a custom built thing um kind of i, I mean i'm just kind of speculating on the whole security through obscurity thing like if you don't make it some super common hackable thing like oh i just generate i click generate wordpress site and then you know that's vulnerable to eight different, you know, ways to, to do like a SQL injection attack or something, because that's just the pre-built thing that comes with WordPress. Yeah. Um, if you're, you know, like making your own weird and wacky system <laughs> for node, <laughs> maybe you're slightly less likely to run afoul of that, but I, I'm totally just shooting from the hip there. I, th I think what you're saying about the WordPress thing makes sense. But I think when you're talking about like, um, like a coding solution, I think that, uh, most developers would not think of the, the right, like levels of protection. Like the whole reason we have things like the, like boards who create OAuth and OADC and all that stuff is to think through all of those scenarios. And so adhering to the best practices of one of those flows, like in a, in a regular web app or a, or a single page app is going to protect you from a lot more possible attacks than if you were to just try to build it naively yourself. Oh yeah. I'm not advocating that like you should go out and 
develop like your own weird and wacky solution for like an OAuth <laughs> system or something. Oh, okay. okay. I'm just saying like, if you're going to go build like, oh, I'm going to, you know, make a basic username password system and do like some hashing or something on the back end. Um, maybe that's, you, you're going to get a little bit more mileage out of that or something. Um, but it's still, you know, you're still going to have to store user information. You're still going to have to store those passwords. So that's all liability that you're taking on. Uh, right. Whereas I'm sure Auth0 has like their own databases that are storing user information and then you're just kind of passing a token. So like <clears throat> you can do that handshake with Auth0 and say like, okay, I want this user's data. And then like it's you guys' job to sec secure that and serve it up. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that's fairly accurate. I mean, I don't think we ha we like take responsibility for the like the usage of it, but but yeah, the implementing the protocols and whatnot. Yeah, gotcha. A lot cool. of people also use their own. I mean, the, using our user store is like one option, but I'd say a lot of uh, a lot of uses use their own. Cost, you know, use their own database and just hook hook our like system into their whatever database they're using. Okay. okay. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you were a uh, kind of like just you know regular guy, full stack developer before you started working for Auth0. Uh, what kind of technology stack were you working with, and what do you work with now? So I um, was doing. .NET on the back end, and then Angular JS and Angular on the front end. All right. Um, and then nowadays, um, with Auth0, you know, I'm I'm mostly writing educational stuff. So I, I'm mostly building. I, I'm not working on a production app right now. Uh, so I tend to live mostly in Angular and React, and like whatever peripheral technologies are around, you know, like NGRX for Angular and Gatsby and Next and stuff like that for React. So I'm I, I'm doing a lot more on the front end now. Um, I'm trying to, trying to shift back and do do some more full stack stuff like with GraphQL and Node and, and that kind of thing just because I miss, I really miss the back end. So I'm trying to pull back to being more full stack. Cool. What do you yeah. what do you think of Node and GraphQL and all that coming from C Sharp? Uh, I really like GraphQL. I think because it's typed, um, it it's strongly typed, mm -hmm. and so that that's awesome. I have to use TypeScript everywhere, uh, otherwise I start to go a little <laughs> crazy. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just, yeah. But uh, another, another like peripherally like Nest JS. If you, I don't know if you've heard of that, like that's like. Mm -hmm. This is basically if Angular was a backend, <laughs> then like yeah. Nest, Nest is like TypeScript, and uh, that's that's a pretty cool technology that I'm enjoying. I like how flexible Node is because of JavaScript. You know that you can do a lot of stuff with it, and like you have like Apollo on both the backend and the front end for GraphQL, and it's like so easy to use and nice and. All of that, so I'm I'm digging all that stuff. I was really skeptical of GraphQL at first because I'm always skeptical of anything that's like new and popular and hip. Uh, but <laughs> but I actually really like it. I'm having a good time with it. That's cool. Nice. Do you want to take a crack at explaining like kind of the short version of what GraphQL is and and what it does for anybody that's curious? 
Yeah, sure. I actually like just recorded a video on uh, on that, so it's Ooh. like really fresh in my mind. Nice. Um, yeah, so GraphQL is a query language, which basically means it's like its own little language. The syntax looks really similar to like JSON, and it's it's a it's designed to help you get and change data in a really fast and scalable way. And so GraphQL itself is totally language agnostic. You can you can implement GraphQL in any language, Java, JavaScript, C Sharp, whatever you want. Um, but what that means is then you have this really standardized way of interacting with those servers. Um, and you have this like typed, like strongly typed system where you know what the the schema, the the data design is going to be, um, and it scales really nicely. So there's there's a, a running problem of when you build out an API and consume it with a front end, you have these problems of overfetching and underfetching. And so overfetching meaning you're you're getting too much data at once. And so you're 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 probably getting having these like big network calls that are really slow, but then on the other hand you have underfetching where you're getting too little data, and so you have to make a bunch of calls one right after another, which can also slow down your app. And that's kind of always the dilemma. And so GraphQL is a an attempt to solve that. And it was created by Facebook, but it's been taken over by like an independent board now. Nice. Cool. So um, what are the what are some of the drawbacks to GraphQL? Because you mentioned a lot of the pros to it, which is like, you know, it's really flexible. You can kind of get exactly what you want out of the API at any given time. Um, it's, you know, kind of ubiquitous in the JavaScript world. There's like a bajillion things that will implement it for you and kind of get you up to speed. But um, maybe when would you not go for GraphQL versus like a traditional REST API? Yeah, I think... I think the majority of the benefit, this is probably an, an arguable point, but I think the majority of the benefits of GraphQL are for the front end. <laughs> and hmm. I, I often, I think it's because it's like popular because it's, you know, hip, I think it gets used a lot, um, like over, overused. I think for like your basic CRUD application, you probably don't need GraphQL. And it's a, it's one of those technologies that's tough because most of the tutorials you're going to see out there are going to be very simple applications just for the sake of learning it. But in the real world, if you were just doing reading and writing with very simple operations to a database, like you probably wouldn't need to build this GraphQL server and all that. It's really meant for it to be used at scale. So a REST API can do a lot of stuff, um, and there are a lot of great backend technologies to build REST APIs really efficiently. So, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. So what would be like a really good use case for GraphQL? Well, if you think about like, think I, I, I always think the best way to think about this is the fact that Facebook invented it. Think about how much user data would be tied into your profile, right? Like you have, you'd have like just the basic profile information and then all of the metadata surrounding like things that you've liked. And I don't know if you've ever like downloaded your data from Facebook, but it's like, it's like bonkers no. how much, no, how much data. It's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it is really, it's depressing, but like <laughs> something like that, where you have these like huge data structures, a graph makes a lot of sense like that. Right. Because like 
the nice thing about GraphQL is you can have this massive data structure and you can explore the relationships between that data without having to do more calls, right? So if you wanted to get somebody's likes and compare it to however many posts they've made under X amount of time or something with like a whole bunch of variables, you can do that in GraphQL like really easily. Whereas like in REST, you'd have to make like 14 different calls to go get all of these different pieces of data. Or you'd have to make one giant call, like build a custom endpoint for like getting likes based on number of posts in a certain date range. And it would just be this like really convoluted endpoint. So like I think thinking through, Netflix is another really good example of like if you think about like what you watch on Netflix, how much time you've spent, how much time you spend browsing. Like there's just like these massive amounts of data that if you were try to were to try to build a REST API to consume that data, it would just be like this huge feat. Whereas like GraphQL, you sort of build all those, you define all of those data structures and relationships. And then the consumer, the front end, can do whatever they want with it without having to to go and request more endpoints to be made. So um, I think probably a lot of people have experience with GraphQL through stuff like uh, Gatsby or uh, maybe like Gridsum or something like that, where you're basically like querying, you know, using the, the GraphQL query language to, you know, go grab like nodes and certain properties off a node or whatever. Um, but then when you think about the back end, that's kind of where things start to get weird. So um, I did, this didn't really... We didn't plan for this to be a GraphQL episode, but since we <laughs> kind of jumped on it. Um, My head is like really in the GraphQL space right now, so I'm totally okay with it. <laughs> cool. So uh, <laughs> like you might be thinking um, like, oh, GraphQL, do I need to have like a graph database or something? And um, for like the database side of it, like on the back end, you can use like a SQL database or Mongo or NoSQL or whatever. None of that really matters. It's you're building like a layer to talk to all that stuff. So right. however you store that data in the back end um, is going to be the same whether you're doing like REST or or FQL. But the system to talk to the front end, like your endpoint or endpoints in REST, um, that that's kind of where it starts to get weird. So with GraphQL, you have one endpoint, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. This was. This was a, a thing that kind of took a while to click for me too. Like the the GraphQL part is really just the interface between the the database and the the front end. Like so, you can you can put anything behind a GraphQL um, layer. Like it could be any type of database. It could even be a REST API. You can basically all you have to do is tell GraphQL through defining what's defining the schema, which is like the different types of data that are there, and then just defining what are called resolvers, which is basically like, hey, GraphQL, anytime you see this thing, it means to go get this thing over here from whatever data source I have, whether that's uh, interacting with a SQL database or uh, another API or something like that. And then GraphQL just does the rest for you. So it's it's does the rest for you. <laughs> so, nah. uh, <laughs> womp, womp. Uh, so, so... So yeah, you can you can still have whatever database you want or and then GraphQL is sort of the the intermediary between the two. So maybe like you might be thinking, oh, well if I have to do a resolver for like every weird query or something, I'm going to have like 300 SQL queries to go grab user information, but um 
really you could just go hit the database and get like more information that you need and then pare it down in your resolver, right? Right. Yeah, you could you could do that. You can there's a lot of this is where this is where really the art and science of GraphQL comes in is like exactly how you do that interaction between GraphQL and the database. I was thinking about this as I was building out like the the sample server for this course that I'm making cuz like it's like I was starting to I was sitting there thinking like if this were a real production app, I would be really concerned about like how many times I'm hitting the database, how like how long these queries are running, things like that. Um, that's where you start really getting in the weeds of like, you know, even though GraphQL makes it really efficient from the front end's perspective, you still have that same, you can't really avoid that same problem that you have in building an API of like, what's the most efficient way to get this data from the database or to add it to the database or update it or whatever. So that part stays the same. You still have to write the queries, you know, you still have to work with whatever, whatever like ORM or, or whatever you're doing to make that efficient. So do you, uh, in your opinion, or maybe in your experience, have you seen like backend engineers kind of roll their eyes at GraphQL? Like, yeah, whatever, it's, it's fine, you know? <laughs> I, I have to some extent because I think, um, I, I think other than, I think one thing that backend engineers get about GraphQL is when it's used as like an orchestration tool, meaning like you have older <laughs> APIs or multiple APIs and GraphQL sort of stands in as this like way to pull things from all these different sources and, and combine them together. Um, GraphQL works really nicely. It's, uh, but I do think for sort of your average like API, I, I think it there does take a little bit of convincing as to why you would do that over just building out a REST API, especially for sort of like the average use case and not something at huge scale like Facebook or something, you know? Yeah, so maybe if you had like a lot of legacy microservices or something, it's like, oh, well, you want profile data? You got to go talk to the profile microservice. Oh, you want like, I don't know watch time or history of videos watched or something, you got to go talk to that microservice and, oh, you want users email? Well, that's a different microservice. And then like, instead of, oh, well, the front end has to worry about all these different APIs they have to talk to, or building like a singular microservice to talk to other microservices. Uh, maybe that's a spot you could throw GraphQL in and just say like, oh, well, a user has profile information. They have like watch data, they have emails and, and you just say, you know, give me blah, blah, user at this ID and whatever other resources you want related to them. And then GraphQL, like under the hood, does all that querying for you and just returns an object. And so you kind of get like a saner workflow um, whenever you're integrating everything, right? Right, exactly. Like, I think that's actually a really common use case because a lot of times you'll have a bunch of different endpoints or microservices or something that have to be consumed in a lot of different places. They might be consumed by other internal services or a native, you know, desktop app or something like that. And then um, the the if they're building a web app of some kind, then the GraphQL server gets spun up as a like a way to combine all that together specifically for any sort of front end that might be consuming it. The one uh, joke that I've heard is that, like the best way to the the best benefit to the backend developer of 
a GraphQL API is the fact that the front end developer won't be bugging them for more endpoints every day. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is surprisingly common. Uh, Eddie, have you kind of run afoul of that? Because I know I have. What, asking for more endpoints? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, definitely. Marketing team comes in and they're like, hey, today we need this. And you're like, ugh. Well, we can build that yeah. in like 10 minutes, but we've got to go talk to backend and they have to, you know, clear out some space in their schedule to actually create that for us. Yeah. And so happens. you end up, yeah, you end up creating a feature and then waiting two months for the backend team to finish what they're doing so they can implement an endpoint. End so then the front end can actually show that data. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I honestly think like a good reason that I went full stack is just because I would would always get so annoyed with having to wait for that. I was just like, just teach me how to build the endpoint myself. I just yeah. I don't I don't want to wait. <laughs> yeah, that's uh I think um I had a coworker that he had like a uh some wallpapers from GitHub and it it was like front end versus back end and the uh the front end there's two different versions of it. Uh one of them was it was like above and below water <clears throat> and one version had like front end at the top and it was like Candyland. Everybody's running around in like rainbows and sunshine, like a Lisa Frank poster. Yeah. And then below it, it was like this Cthulhu looking, uh, <laughs> like monster with tentacles and stuff. And then the other version of it was like front end at the top. And it was, um, it kind of looked like, like the purge or something like just anarchy and entropy, like everywhere, just things going wild and exploding and stuff. And then below it, it was like this intricate machine, like clockwork with like fine gears ticking and stuff. So, yeah, uh, I think there's some truth to both sides of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah on, on front end, it's, you know, it's not a big deal to make some, some buttons or components or whatever. Like, yeah, I can do that. And uh, okay, sure. I'll hit the endpoint. Um, it, it seems like it would be really nice to just be able to tap into one service and like, okay, I want this specific resource. Um, and then it kind of already being there. Uh, but right. that does kind of raise the question of like, if you're going to tie in another thing and it's not already there, like, don't they have to still write the resolver or whatever? Uh, not necessarily because the resolvers are really more meant to define the relationships between things. So you try to write your resolvers to be as like atomic as possible, meaning like they do one thing, you know, like, so you're, you're telling, you're telling the resolvers to go get certain things and you're defining the relationships between them. And then GraphQL like will orchestrate all of those things. So like if I have a, you know, collection of posts and then that has a collection of comments, then the resolvers are just defining like, you know, that the resolver for post goes to the database and gets this and the, the resolver for uh, comments goes and gets the comments from the database. But if I ask for the posts with the comments, then GraphQL knows how to do that knows how to combine them together and i think a lot of the secret sauce of some server technologies for graphql is exactly how they do that combination to be efficient um but that's a that's a topic for another day <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah you shouldn't have to uh you shouldn't have to get to you shouldn't have to be writing too many extra resolvers once you have all of the basic like once you have the basic schema and relationships defined, I mean, other until you start getting much more complicated. Gotcha. 
So what are some, uh, since you've been kind of working with it, what are some technologies that you have used in that space that are, are great and maybe accessible for beginners? You mentioned Apollo earlier. Is that maybe a good one to start with? Yeah, Ap- Apollo is pretty awesome. It's they, they have pretty good documentation at this point, and they just the user experience is really nice. Like in on the React side of things, they have uh, really nice hooks to be able to interact with a GraphQL server. Um, did you want like learning resources too, or just like the technologies or everything? Hit me with everything. whatever you got. Yeah, so. Um, one of the kind of de facto resources you always hear about is just called howtographql.com. Um, and we can link to all these things, I'm sure. Uh, that's a good one. Another really great resource is a, um, a podcast by Natter Davit called GraphQL Patterns. It's a, it's, it sort of ranges between uh, like, beginner to advanced some episodes are really advanced some episodes are more beginner friendly and i think he's going to get it started again pretty soon um i would also be remiss if i didn't mention uh anything by eve porcello i think that's how you pronounce her name um she does stuff on egghead and then her and her um partner Alex do a bunch of different instruction on GraphQL. They like wrote a book for O'Reilly and stuff like that. So I don't think there's one particular resource to link to. We can just link to Eve and Alex's stuff. Um, cool. Yeah. She's they're They're really, they're really good at explaining, like breaking the GraphQL stuff down as like a, uh, like easily accessible, like very beginner friendly. I can't recommend them enough. Um, uh, let's see what else. Scott Moss has a really excellent course on front end, ma- front end masters on GraphQL, both on the, he's got one course on the back end side and one course on the front end side. Um, and what I love about Scott's courses is like, Scott is not primarily an educator. He is just like working with GraphQL in production all day, every day. And you can really tell in his courses because it's very like real world oriented. So I'm a really big fan of his stuff. Um, it's cool. And then I'd probably be, I probably should give myself a shout out cause I'm working on a course <laughs> on Apollo for react for Thinkster for thinkster.io should be out, um, in the next few months. I don't know when it'll be out, but, but that's one thing that I'm working on. So yeah, a lot of good resources out there actually on, on GraphQL. Cool. Awesome. Uh, what is Thinkster, by the way? Oh, Thinkster is a, a learning platform. It's an education platform, uh, thinkster.io. And what I really like about them is they, so first of all, it's owned by a, someone na- named Joe Eames, who has been in the tech education space for like decades. And uh, it, and he and his uh, business partner, Brooke, they're, they have a, like an education background. And so what I, why I like making courses for them is they're very focused on like learning by doing. And so they, um, they always like integrate exercises and like sample code and stuff like that. So I like building courses. I did this huge course on Gatsby for them. And if you go look at it, it's like I put 
I've got videos, I've got text, I've got sample code, I've got links. Like I can dump all of that into like a like a really thorough learning experience for people. Um, so I, I really recommend Thinkster on top of everything else. <laughs> cool. Eddie, you got any other Auth0 authentication GraphQL questions? No, I have like very limited experience with this stuff. Um, yeah, I've never used it outside of Gatsby, so yeah. <laughs> I've seen I've seen some cool videos, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, interested in it, but like no, have, haven't used it much. Yeah, yeah, I think Gatsby kind of re reawakened this sort of like oh yeah GraphQ, GraphQL like if you weren't already using it with something like Apollo, uh, I think it's bringing more people into like wanting to learn GraphQL. Cool. Yeah, Gatsby is kind of funny because. Um, <clears throat> I use Gatsby and Gritsum and I only use it for, <laughs> for like markdown coordination. So like it does this local build process where it sources all these local files and then like puts them into GraphQL so that you can like query them. And, uh, it seems like a rocket launcher to swat a fly almost <clears throat> because GraphQL is like super powerful and I'm only ever looking at my local files. I'm not like talking to all these different APIs or anything. Yeah. I'm not like coordinating this giant, you know, spider web of services together. Uh, it's just like looking through a bunch of markdown files, but it's still really cool to use. So I can't really fault them. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I always wonder like if they're going to abstract away any of the GraphQL, like for simple use cases, like, if if it, like it's such a common use case to use Gatsby for just like Markdown and stuff like that, like I wonder if they're going to introduce any sort of like layer on there of just like go get my Markdown posts and like not have you having to write the query or something. I, I mean, as an opt-in thing, I know they probably would always leave it there, but to some extent. I've always thought it's kind of funny that you have to learn some GraphQL in order to work with Gatsby because it seems like kind of an implementation detail that you may not really need to worry about, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of. <clears throat> cool. So, uh, Sam, where can we find you online? I am on both Twitter and Twitch at just at Sam Juline. And then I have a, uh, a website, samjuline.com, which I, is about to get refreshed. I've been working on a Gatsby rebuild of it, so it should be out pretty soon. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, so for those are pretty much the main outlets for if you need any, if you've got any questions on Auth or Angular or GraphQL or anything's like anything like that, like I'm always happy to help. Cool. cool. So Sam, at the end of every show, we have a little segment called Nerd Minute, uh, where we talk about video games or books or movies or whatever. Uh, you're the guest. Is there anything that you've been into lately? Yeah, this is a real nerdy one. I've re mm -hmm. I've really been getting into um, the game Fire Emblem Three Houses for Switch. Oh, cool! Um, it's a it's a like turn based JRPG type thing. Um, I've never really been like an anime person. It's a lot more anime. Like the cutscenes <laughs> are all like anime and stuff, but but it, man, it's such a fun game. Like I grew up playing games like Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger and Earthbound and like all those like turn-based RPG things. And this Fire Emblem game is really scratching that itch for me. So I've been like really nerding out on that game. Cool, awesome. So uh, I'm I'm not a huge Fire Emblem fan, but 
what about you, Eddie? Uh, no, I know of it. Um, I know there's a pretty strong following for them. They're pretty popular on Nintendo platforms. Um, I know uh, that's about there's it. a lot of memes and kind of gripes around like Fire Emblem characters in Smash Brothers and stuff. Yeah, what's like, it, Marth? Oh, yet another Fire Emblem. Like Marth and Roy. Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, this is actually the first Fire Emblem game I've ever played. Uh, and my, uh, up to now, my only exposure to Fire Emblem was the characters in various Smash Brothers games over the years. <laughs> okay. Marth was always a character I really liked in Smash Brothers, but... I like uh, Ike in the... Uh, oh, yeah. I think the GameCube one. Yeah, I, I don't remember, but I do remember Ike. Yeah, yeah that was, he was pretty good. Um, I've always heard like Fire Emblem games are kind of unforgiving. Yeah, uh, they're supposed to be pretty difficult, right? So, okay, that's that's interesting because in this one, they've introduced like a casual mode. Uh, where, okay. like, And that's what, that's what I've been playing it. Um, I probably shouldn't have done so casual mode. So there's no but, like death or anything like that. Right, exactly. So I guess mm-hmm. in like standard mode, if one of your characters dies, like they're gone, like no, yeah. no getting them back. Uh, whereas like in casual mode, they just die in battle and then they're back for the next, the next round or whatever. They just like retire back to the, to the, the school. It's basically, th- this game is basically like Final Fantasy Hogwarts. Like you're, you like play, you're like a professor. It really is like you're a professor and you have these students and you have to like level them up and then like fight all these battles and, and stuff like that. And it's like, it's kind of silly, but it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> Are you naming everyone or just. Nah, they, no? they have, they have, they have names. Okay. Kind of, it sounds like a Final Fantasy type zero. Oh, I don't know that one. Uh, it's, it's another like school of, I guess, battle. I don't know. Hogwarts for soldiers. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Final <laughs> Fantasy's weird, man. Yeah. yeah. There's a uh, remakes out now, uh, for seven. Oh yeah. That looks oh, really yeah, good. Yeah. It's getting really good reviews. I'm holding out for the PC version. So uh, it'll spoil probably it for happen. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I played the, uh, the PS one version, like, gosh. 20 years ago. Yeah, so. when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So, uh, that'll be an interesting one wherever I finally get my hands on it. Yeah. I never finished it, but I played through it twice till the end and then never beat the, the boss or Sephiroth. I got to, uh, I think, Niflheim. I'm probably butchering the, uh, the actual town name, but I got like halfway through it and I got to a boss that I couldn't beat. And so I had my friend Game Shark my save, and he just gave me like a bajillion materia that were maxed out, and then just kind of like cheated my way to the end. That's cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Eddie, what do you got for Nerd Minute? <laughs> so um, I caught up on Clone Wars. Um, so that's been good. Uh, also, uh, I watched a couple episodes of the new season of Altered Carbon which is a really good show. Um, yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. Um, if you like sci-fi, uh, Blade Runner type of stuff. Uh, it's, Ooh, it's yeah, Blade pretty, Runner is one of my favorites. Yeah, I love Blade Runner. Yeah, uh, Blade Runner 20, what is it, 2040, whatever? 49. 49, yeah. Is it 49? Pretty sure. Anyway, I, I love so. that movie. I keep forgetting, I, I forget numbers. Uh <laughs> But yeah, that movie's great. Um, but yeah, Altered Carbon. It's within that same kind of Blade Runner vein. Um, yeah. Or Cyberpunk, too. Um, yeah, it, it's cool. P- 
people switching bodies, uh, you know, living forever, basically. It's, I enjoyed uh, uh, cool. season two of Alter Carbon. Um, you watched it all already? Yeah, I've seen all of it. Uh, okay. I saw a lot of people kind of complaining about it because I guess it wasn't living up to the book's uh, pedigree. Oh, right. I've never read it, but that first season was really good. I, I think I like the first season better than the second one, but I still okay. enjoyed the, the second season. That's cool. Also, uh, kind of Deus Ex reminds me of that whole Yeah, yeah. That whole vibe. Oh, you know what? I also saw Happy. The second season of Happy. Have you seen oh, that? I mean, that, the one where he's got the cartoon character. Yeah, it's like a, a based off a of Grant Morrison like a comic book. Um, it's that first season is really really good. Second season is okay. It, it's good. It's not as good as the first season. Um, but yeah, it's 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 funny. It's messed up. I was gonna curse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's completely it, it, the, and the second season gets really wacky because um, they really dig into the like the imaginary friend like universe and there's aliens involved and stuff like that. But um, why not? Yeah, <laughs> but the first season is is not as crazy. Uh, there's still an imaginary friend because his name's Happy. That's who the uh, the show's based on, um, and he's funny. Um, but yeah, like. Uh, if you, if you're into that kind of thing, it's it's like in the first season, he used to be a cop. He's like an assassin now, but he's always drunk and high, and um, he's trying to save this little girl. Who later on he realizes he finds out it's his daughter, and um, and her imaginary friend uh, leaves her to try to save her and finds her father. And then um, he starts to see the imaginary friend. He's the only person that can see it. And um, together they try to solve like who's kidnapped her and try to save her before she's murdered. That's basically the first season. And the second season just builds on that. And there's like this other storyline going on in the background of the first season that they delve into, um, dive into, into the second season. And there's like this child, like, like the blues clues guy. <laughs> Is Steve? basically what this guy is, yeah. Uh, and stripes he, and he, all. What's that? Stripes and all. No, he's more <laughs> extravagant than that. Um, oh. He's like dresses up and does all these things and flips around and whatnot. But um, it's like Blues Clues meets Teletubbies because he has these like Teletubby-looking dudes in the background. And they're always in costume, and that's there. There's a reason for that, which you find out in the second season. And I am um, way too sober for this recap. Yeah, but, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, this seems pretty intense. Yeah, there were like weird sex parties and stuff like that oh going on. Yeah, it's it's there's this my whole thing years. going on in the second season, um, and also with the imaginary friends. So you got to watch it. Uh, it 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 was cool. It's 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 intense. Worth watching. <laughs> I'd say that much. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, is this on Netflix or Amazon? It's on Prime Netflix, yeah. Both seasons okay. are on Netflix now. Yeah, I watched like 30 seconds of it and then Lynn was like, turn this, you know what off. So <laughs> <laughs> it's it's good. It didn't go over well. Um yeah, so all I've got is uh, I saw a movie that came out on Netflix, uh Code Eight, which uh oh, has, okay. The name of that has nothing to do with the movie. They don't unveil or tie into that at any point, but um, at least that I remember. Uh, it's kind of a mundane um, concept. It's people have superpowers, and 
in the society like modern America where people have had superpowers since like, I don't know, the forties or something, um, modern day, um, they've kind of taken it in an X-Men ish direction where people with powers are discriminated against and Uh, are being like banned from using their powers and deemed like too dangerous to use them without like permits and stuff. Uh, so they've kind of got this whole gun control allegory at the same time. Um, and then like a, another spin on it is kind of, you know, like discrimination and different, um, like people being impoverished because they're discriminated against and stuff like that. So, um, kind of a some heavy themes throughout it but for the most part it's like kind of a lighthearted movie about this guy that's kind of down on his luck but has amazing superpowers uh so he can like he has like lightning powers i guess where he can like zap stuff and fry electronics and whatnot so he gets recruited into uh this uh underground organization that's like robbing banks and stuff trying to earn money to save his mom who has like a brain tumor basically so um the whole story kind of revolves around him trying to save his mom, but not totally delve into a life of crime. Uh, but some of the the themes around it make it interesting, even though it's kind of a by the numbers um, action movie, mm-hmm. uh, superhero movie type of trope. But surprisingly, like there's no superheroes in it. Um, so everybody really? is kind of on this level playing field of plenty of people have superpowers. Oh, so it's, it's like not hmm. special. So, um, what's interesting is you can see him doing like a lot of day jobs in the early bits of the movie where he's working like construction and hanging out, like out front of a home Depot, basically waiting for somebody in a pickup truck to come around and, you know, like pick him up, uh, kind of like you might see with like illegal, illegal immigrants working, uh, you know, with, um, construction jobs or something like in modern America. Yeah. Um, but instead it's like people with superpowers. So you can see him like doing wiring and stuff in houses, like, uh, trimming pipes and stuff with their like heat powers. And some of them have super strength. So they're picking up like large blocks and stuff and cement. Uh, so pretty interesting, um, to kind of see what society would look like, uh, in that dystopian view of like superpowered citizens. But, uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, it kind of ended on, um, a bit of a, it didn't really stick the landing, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, the ending was a little disappointing, but they set it up for a sequel, which would be super interesting. So we'll see if that ever gets greenlit. Maybe they'll call it Code 9. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Netflix original? I think so, but I'm not 100%. Okay. Netflix That's movies got- have not been great. Their shows, are, um, like, you know, they're, they're, some of them are pretty good. Um, but the movies themselves, I, nothing's really wowed me. It had, a the actor that played Green Arrow uh, on the CW. Oh, okay. He was, um, kind of the secondary protagonist and I, the protagonist is another actor I recognize, but I don't remember his name. And then it also had, a I don't remember this guy's name either, but he was, <laughs> um, he was Han in the Fast and Furious movies. Oh, okay. He's back. He he's alive. Now. <laughs> he's alive. Um, now. He he played a cop in this one, so uh, it was okay. It had some good actors in it, uh, but like I said, it was kind of a by the numbers action flick, um, action heist, true crime kind of thing. So uh, it it was interesting. It's worth a watch. Hour and a half. Cool. Nice. So uh, I think we can wrap it up there. 
Sam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, we, uh, it was a yeah, blast. Thanks so you. much. It was great. Thanks for having awesome. me. Yes, we will. Uh, we will talk to you again soon. I hope, and maybe grill you about some other topic aside from GraphQL and authentication. <laughs> yeah, totally. We didn't even get into my self-taught background or anything. So happy to happy to come on anytime. Oh yeah. Yes, we'll have to invite you back to jump into that backstory. Sure. Hey, thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Please head over to our website at techjunior.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, please sign up for our newsletter. Um, it goes out once a week with the latest episode and other goodies that we think you guys would like. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Special thanks to all our current patrons. And uh, we also have a Teespring store with t-shirts and stickers designed by Lee and I. Um, you can find links to both these things at our, on our website at techjunior.dev under support. Um, please follow us on Twitter at techjuniorpodcast. Um, you can also follow our personal accounts. Uh, Lee is at Lee Warwick Jr. I am at Ed Otero. The O's are zeros. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>